Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome to New Books in Performing Arts. My name is Andy Boyd. Today I'm speaking with Luke Sant, author of Maybe the People Would Be the Times. This interview was conducted over the phone, so the sound quality may be a bit lower than what you're used to on the program. When did you start to think of yourself as a writer? I started thinking of myself as a writer when I was 10. Um, I had wanted to be an artist up until that point, but I was never satisfied with my drawing skills. And that year, I had a great teacher who um, encouraged my writing, told me I had real gifts and I should stick with it. And I decided to be a writer right then. Um, And footnote, at that time, I'd been speaking English for less than three years. And you were born in Belgium. Um, What seemed strange to you about America when you were a kid? pretty much everything. Um, you know, I always say it, it was like time travel um, because in Belgium, we were middle class and we had a new house, but like, you know, similar people in that situation in Europe, then we didn't have central heating. We didn't have a refrigerator. We didn't have hot running water. We didn't have a telephone. Needless to say, no television, um, no record player, um, you know, we bought food fresh for every meal, all this kind of stuff. And we come to the United States, and it's 30 years later in the United States. We're living in the 1930s, essentially, in Belgium, and this is in the early 60s. Um, and in, your, in, in the United States, we're much poorer than we've been in Belgium, but we have a car, TV, telephone, <laughs> the whole nine yards. Um, so it was very, very odd. And also, for that matter, um, I'd go to school shifting back and forth between continents. And in Belgium, the, the study stuff we were studying was a full year ahead of what the Americans were studying. So, you know, the, it was odd from every point of view. Um, and I wasn't particularly disturbed by it. I, I was a tourist. I was enjoying the whole thing. I loved going back and forth. And I loved experiencing the different, you know, when – there were great things in one place and great things in another. And uh, it's affected my life ever since because I keep expecting to be able, you know, emotionally expecting, even though not intellectually, to go back to some previous life in that way. You know, I can I can just go back to lower Manhattan and it will be the 1979 all over again. But, you know, um, but at that time, um, you know, it really um, – played mischief with my uh, differentiating between time and space. And do you feel like this kind of helped you as a writer, the sense of not being quite an insider in American culture? Definitely. Oh, yeah. I've always been an outsider. Um, You know, I mean, pretty, you know, my childhood was pretty isolated because I'm an only child, no first cousins, um, we came here where the, this was a period where there was not immigration, very little between um, the uh, 
the immigration after World War II that ended in the mid-50s, and then the worldwide diaspora, which really began sort of in the late 70s. And in that period between, there wasn't very little immigration. We didn't know any other immigrants, let alone other Belgians. We had no immigrant community, you know. So um, so I always felt like I was all by myself in every circumstance. And, you know, especially since my parents and I were by then living on different planets, too, because um, I adapted to English very rapidly, and they just didn't, you know. They didn't adapt to the language or to the culture whereas I could kind of play both sides of the fence. Do you know why they decided to move to America? Yes. Um, the um, the local industry where I came from was a textile industry that had been in place for centuries, and it collapsed in the 50s. And it had employed pretty much everybody in my family, at least on my father's side, and suddenly everybody was unemployed. And my father um, was faced with a choice between um, either taking a job in the Congo or, because um, this, this was a year before Congolese independence, or going on the dole. And he didn't want to do either one, but he had a friend, a childhood friend, who'd married an American soldier after the war. She was a war bride, as they used to say, and moved to New Jersey. And it's because of them that, because of her, that we uh, we followed, eventually years later, um, you know, with promises of uh, yes, it's very easy to find a good job, et cetera, and uh, which didn't happen, so we moved back, you know. And this is a very complicated story. When did you start going into the city, into New York, uh, regularly? Uh, when I got a scholarship to a Jesuit high school on the Upper East Side when I was 14 and was commuting every day. And how long after you started commuting into Manhattan to go to school did you start skipping class and <laughs> going down to the Lower East Side and uh, and, and kind of hanging around there? Uh, not very long at all. <laughs> yeah, I well, I was kind of a model student my first year, but I was starting to sneak around after hours. I didn't really start cutting classes until my sophomore year, I think, but I was already, you know, going down to St. Mark's place and hang around um, head shops and bookstores and stuff like that. And and did you have a sense of anything that was going on? I mean, you know, downtown New York in the 60s, is kind of a legendarily uh, productive artistic scene. Did you have a sense of that from reading magazines and head shops and stuff, or was that something you kind of organically discovered? Well, I mean, I knew about, um, for example, the Fillmore East, where I saw, you know, I went there three or four times probably over the years. I, you know, I was kind of pretty tightly roped in by my parents, but occasionally let me do something like that. Um, as far as the artistic scene, um, I had a wavering idea of it, um, you know, because I was, well, for one thing, I was very young, but also very shy, uh, didn't talk to people easily. Um, and so what I knew, I picked up from printed sources. And the underground press was not about art at that point. You know, maybe comics, but um, but it was more about, you know, the police, the war, drug busts, um, you know, racial strife, everything like that. Um, and I didn't really know about, I mean, I knew about, uh, eventually, I knew about the Poetry Project, for example. It was, became very important to me. 
Um, but as far as what people were doing, you know, I didn't have that kind of insight because I was too young. I, you know, to to really be led into the centers of creation, um, at least in the pre-internet era, um, it was a social thing. You were led in by other people. Otherwise, you'd probably never find it by accident. And I wasn't in a position to do that yet. That would wait until I got to college. And you went to Columbia, right? Yeah, I did. Was the main reason you went to Columbia because it was in New York City? Pretty close, yeah. It was that, and um, it was the school where Allen Ginsberg and Jack Kerouac had gone. And also, I was a poet at the time, and I wanted to study with the great Kenneth Koch who was um, the poetry instructor at Columbia in those years. Did you end up studying with him? Oh, yeah. I took his poetry writing class as a freshman. What was that experience like? Uh, It was fantastic. I mean, he didn't admit very many freshmen. And um, I, every year, every, every week I'd get geared up. I felt very competitive about it. I'm not usually a tremendously competitive person but i was competitive then i was determined that my poems would beat everybody else's poems every week um and um and then um the year after that i took kenneth's course on prosody and that's when i realized i wasn't a poet at all because i you know was really not interested in prosody i wanted to write prose actually and that's what i ended up doing although i still kind of feel like a poet it's a you know i mean the rules of prosody are one thing but the uh the difference between to coin the phrase the poetic spirit and the prosaic spirit um i i'm a non-combatant there i i kind of work both sides of that line i think yeah and, and many of the essays in this collection maybe the people would be the times seem to kind of straddle that line and they're you know they're 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 formatted in a way that makes them appear as if they're essays but they're really something else entirely yeah i think in a lot of cases that's true yeah um one person that you write about at some length is patty smith i i love patty smith i think she's the coolest person alive <laughs> but um <laughs> what were your first impressions of her when did you first become aware of, of patty smith uh, there was um, new, the Rolling Stone, which was a very, very different publication back then than it was even 10 years later. Um, they, um, For a while, they were putting out these little supplements for cities. I don't know how many cities they did it in, but there was a New York supplement called the New York Flyer. And um, when Patty appeared in Cowboy Mouth with Sam Shepard, the play they wrote together, they only had one performance. And there was a little story about her in the New York Flyer right after that, which I think might have been her first appearance in print, or first appearance being profiled in any case. And um, it it blew me away because I thought I was a rock and roll poet, you see. That was my... um, my, my my cherished belief at the time, and I couldn't believe that there was somebody else doing it too. Anyway, um, I went and saw her when she appeared at Le Jardin, which was a gay disco in the roof garden of the Hotel Diplomat on 40, West 43rd Street, <laughs> and I was just knocked out by this. Um, this was, I was at the beginning of my so- sophomore year at Columbia, 
I was 19, and um, she performed with um, Lenny Kay on guitar and Richard Soule on piano. And it wasn't, you know, a rock band. Uh, she, it, it would be some years afterward before she really fully developed a Patti Smith band. This was um, a solo performance with accompanying musicians. And she told jokes. She, she read poems. She sang songs. And you got the feeling it was so spontaneous seeming. It was as if she'd made it all up on the spot. She was electrifying. She was really funny and unpretentious and talked directly to the audience and no showbiz patter, you know, it was all like coming directly from her uh, galvanizing performance. And then, you know, she didn't disappoint me. I think I saw her almost every time she performed after that before releasing Horses in November of uh 75 um you know i saw her in in all kinds of performance spaces um and um sometimes with um lenny and or richard and sometimes all by herself and i was never disappointed she was just fantastic um you know i might have seen her 30 or 40 times altogether did it surprise you when she started like having fronting an actual rock band and eventually releasing a great rock and roll record or was that did that seem sort of the inevitable kind of next step from her solo performances well it didn't happen overnight i saw it happening bit by bit um you know the first time i went to cbgb she was performing with television or i mean she she wasn't performing with television but on the same bill on the same bill um although she did perform with television a couple of times after that um but um she um so at first it was like those cabaret or cafe performances, but then she gradually added other musicians and they gradually became a band and they gradually became a really crackerjack band, you know, after, because they played a lot and they toured a lot. And so constant rehearsing. Um, and um, when horses came out, it was, you know, the logical culmination of all this. Um, and it was, you know, no nobody ever knows. I mean, with bands, you can go see bands and they're electrifying live. And then um, when it comes to putting down the wax, it congeals and it's never the same again. But that didn't happen with her. I mean, horses really, really represented what she'd been up to. It was just this natural culmination. Then after that, it started getting a little more hidebound. And Lenny Kay at that time was already somewhat known for compiling the Nuggets compilation. Had you been aware of Nuggets at the time? I did know of Nuggets. I also knew of Lenny because um, I um, this was uh, one of those places I came upon when I was cutting classes from high school. Uh, he worked at the register at Village Oldies when it was on Bleecker Street. And, um, and I'd just go there and, and hang out because – He'd always be talking to somebody, you know, the clerks, there was him, there was Bleaker Bob, a bunch of other people, (coughs) excuse me. And then people would just come in to hang out, and they'd always be talking about music. And I got a whole education that way, you know. And um, I was was a regular, and I, you know, Lenny was very nice to me. Um, As I say, I was very shy, but I did strike up conversations now and then with, with him, and he was 
just terrific. And so when I saw her play at Le Jardin and it was Lenny on guitar, who I recognized immediately, you know, it felt like, oh, yeah, well, this is, you know, it's, this is a natural and logical thing that these two people I've been interested in in different ways should actually be collaborating. When you were writing at, at this time, kind of in the mid-70s, you know, how did, how did that connect to, you know, the kind of music scene? I mean, you, you write that kind of music was at the center of this community, but of, of course there were people doing other things, you know, painting and writing poetry oh, yeah. and stuff like that. Sure. <laughs> Absolutely. People were doing all kinds of different things. Um, and, um, you know, the idea of everybody starting a band was something that crept in gradually and probably peaked around 1979-1980 as far as my particular subset is concerned um but before that um and probably you know going back as far as i can think of for people my age um you know we first became aware of the music when i mean i saw the beatles on ed sullivan 1964 and that was a revelation you know and and kind of never stopped listening to music after that and the music was you know news that happened every day that you know x or y would release a record that would potentially you know change the world and it just was like that through the from 1965 or so until, um, in my experience, until the early 80s. Um, you know, no matter what other interests I was pursuing, music was always a big thing, followed by only by movies. Literature, you know, then as now, not a very interesting field except very occasionally. You know, very occasionally somebody publishes a book that's like revolutionary, but music was doing this every day. And, and so, when did you start? Um, oh, sorry. No, no, go ahead, please. Uh, when when did you start going to see films? I mean, you you know, at places like Anthology Archives or, or or the other kind of downtown film houses. When did you start going there? And and how did you kind of find your way into the kind of film canon? Well, um, that that started when I was in high school. You know, I would cut classes to go see movies, and gradually I learned about the history of the movies. Um, because, well, for one thing, there were at least a dozen revival houses just in Manhattan at that point um, who'd show, you know, they all had their particular leanings. Some of them would show, you know, mainly musicals and stuff like that. You know, some would show European art films. Um, and, um, And then when I got to Columbia, there were at least half a dozen screenings on, on weekends and at least one or two screenings every week weekday um and people were showing all kinds of movies you know you'd see silent movies you'd see african movies you'd see um you know the czech underground i mean you know there you we're being exposed to so many different kinds of movies all the time and they were always available and um Besides the stuff that was going on on campus, the stuff that was going on in the city um, was always listening to Village Voice. So, you know, that was an easy one-stop. 
Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. You have a great line in the book where you're talking about all the things that were horrible about living in New York in the 70s. And then you say none of that is a tragedy because you can afford to fail. Do you feel like that's part of what has been lost in the kind of new New York that's been created in the past 30 years? Oh, absolutely. Big time. One of the biggest things that's been lost Um, because, you know, people are funneled into careers. Um, You know, when I I can honestly say um, nobody that I was friends with in college knew quite exactly what they were going to be. I mean, we all harbored various ambitions. And I think, you know, 90% of us at that point would have said poet, partly because, you know, the poetry with the poetry project, etc. cetera, uh, poetry was maximally hip in the early 70s when we started college. Didn't last too bad, but anyway. Um, but, um, but, you know, nobody ended up being a poet. Um, uh, and, you know, my... Uh, my my friend uh, Jim Jarmusch became a filmmaker. You know, my friend Phil Klein became a composer. You know, all these people who I was close friends with, and we talked about poetry and stuff. And I knew they had other interests. I had other interests. But you know, when it came to eventually finding a place to land, something to pursue, uh, it took a few years in most cases. And some people didn't find it until they were in their thirties. Um, and you know, it was absolutely necessary to um, go through your 20s absorbing things, you know, reading books, seeing movies, listening to music, looking at art, and um, and at the same time socializing, you know, and doing various possibly questionable drug adventures and all that. This is all necessary part of growing up and being young and, and you know, getting it together to put something forth into the world. Um, and, you know, that's all lost when people are funneled into careers right away. And furthermore, they get sieved into these careers where everybody they know is pursuing the same career. And, um, you know, that was always one of the great things about the Lower East Side is that, you, had, you know, you had your junk sculptors and your poets and your, um, you know, your, your lute players, and they'd all speak to one another. You know, they're all hanging out together. And I'm not sure this happens so much anymore because people, you know, um, they go to college, they get their MFA, um, and then they go teach and they're surrounded by people and their professional lives and, and their social lives become intertwined and it's all about this one line. I mean, even today, I would say, you know, of my friends, probably a minority of them are writers. You know, most of my friends are artists but in different fields um and um but in any case um the ability to live cheaply and surrounded by people who are interesting when you're young is absolutely essential and 
it may be something that's just gone for good, uh, you know, and I have no idea how um, young artists are going to develop under those circumstances. It's definitely going to be a lot harder. That does seem to be a sort of common denominator in all the great scenes of art history is cheap rent. <laughs> yes, yes, indeed. Are you surprised that young people and people in my generation, I'm 29, do you, are you surprised that people in my generation romanticize the New York of the 70s and 80s, or does it seem like like pretty romantic in retrospect? No, it, do, it doesn't surprise me at all. I romanticize it to myself. <laughs> Um, you know, I mean, I, when I write about it, I try to be as unromantic as I can, you know, because the fact is, um, it's very easy to be carried away with the romanticism of it. But at the same time, you have to real, you know, you have to realize that we went through, um, you know, significant parts of winter without heat, um, you know, or without hot running water, um, and, um, brutal landlords, you know, sometimes there was, I mean, I you know, mid-70s, it was really, unless you were going to a hi-hat restaurant in Midtown, it was sometimes difficult to find places to eat, you know, because there just weren't restaurants. Um, we're not the ones that are, were not just open for lunch. Um, you know, so it was not, um, it was materially not the easiest existence, but, of course, we didn't care because we were young in part. You know, I didn't give a shit what kind of food I ate. It was, uh, you know, so long as I there was food that came around three times a day, that, that was good enough for me. Um, so, yeah, it, it you know, does, especially by comparison with anything since, tremendously romantic times. And in writing about my youth, I find myself sometimes feeling guilty. You know, um, here I am, I had... You know, I lived through a wonderful time, and I'm writing about it, and I'm making people feel bad they did not experience this wonderful time, too. And the only way I can take comfort, really, is by reading um, people's memories of the 60s, which I think were more wonderful than the 70s. <laughs> but the fact <laughs> is that you can probably do that with every generation. You know, every generation uh, envies the one before, you know, unless you're futurists, I guess. Um mm -hmm. Uh, you know, it because um, life was always a little simpler, a little more open. You know, I mean, those were simpler times is a very questionable statement about any period in history. But nevertheless, things were more open in part because um, things, you know, before Ronald Reagan broke the social contract, many things were easier in general about life but also don't forget there are fewer people you know i mean the uh the whole punk scene in manhattan in 1975 was what 200 people you know it was very small and you couldn't get to know everybody you actually could um or at least you'd know them by sight or you'd know somebody who knew them um you know so it, there was greater intimacy um there was less fear, less problems with money in general. I mean, nobody had any money, but um, but it nobody had any money. But you could still scratch up enough to pay rent if you're, you know, because you could get you could be paying probably less than two hundred dollars, maybe less than one hundred and fifty dollars a month. So you know, 
putting in a couple of hours at a book, I mean, more than a couple, but putting in a few days at a bookstore or record store or, you know, working the door at a concert venue or something like that, you could pay your rent. That made things so much easier, you know. So it, there's, it's a combination of convenience and romance, I suppose. Do you feel like living in New York at this time gave you any kind of special insight into, I don't know, for lack of a better term, the underground that you used when you wrote Low Life, which is about the kind of turn of the century underground in New York? You know, I don't think of that as the underground. I mean, my purpose in writing Low Life, well, I had two, really. One of them was... um I started writing it. I mean, I was the impulse for writing it came when um, huge real estate investments started showing up downtown, and buildings were being bought and flipped, and you know, speculation was going on. People were buying shells of gutted tenements, gutted by fire. You know, all this sort of stuff. And um, I was afraid that it was all going to disappear without a trace. Um, that the whole memory of, you know, our you know, immigrant forebears of um, the, the the culture that had reigned in this neighborhood for a century and a half at least was going to disappear. And that, you know, there were weird uh, recurrences. There were, you know, certain physical spaces, certain intersections, certain streets seemed to lend themselves to recurring phenomena over the centuries in mysterious ways. And also to declare a kind of solidarity with these people who'd gone before us. You know, the building where I lived when I was writing Low Life, where I lived for more than 10 years, um, had also been the home of one of the women who died in a Triangle shirtwaist fire in 1911. Mm -hmm. So, you know, um, it wasn't the underground. Um, It was the working people. It was the people who don't, show up often in history because they are seen as the acted upon rather than the actors. Um, so anyway, that's, yeah. I mean, I sure. did gather the, the impulse to write low life and, you know, did a lot of unconsciously did a lot of kind of pre-research during this time. But, um, but it wasn't, I mean, it, yeah, you know, I mean, the, the fact is that CBGB was really kind of a last Bowery saloon. Um, I mean, it literally was a Bowery saloon. And um, as you could see, I went in there after it closed down, and you could see, like, you know, there was a, ra- a mural of a horse race and stuff like that. It had been a saloon on that spot continuously since, I forget, the 1860s, maybe, something like that. Um wow. And it had somehow survived as an entertainment venue um, when everything else on that avenue closed down. So it was, um, I like to think of CBGBs not only, you know, a harbinger of a certain kind of scene and, you know, punk and blah, 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 but also as the inheritor of this tradition going back more than a century at that point. Was another thing that drew you to this kind of immigrant Lower East side of the early 20th century the fact that you were also an immigrant? Oh, definitely. I mean, um, I think when you're an immigrant, you don't stop being an immigrant. You're an immigrant all your life. And uh, I feel tremendous solidarity with um, with the immigrants of the 1890s as well as with the immigrants of today. You know, I mean, 
I, whenever I read about the Mexican border, I see my family there. Mm-hmm. And that is part of what has made New York such a vibrant place for so long, is I think it's the city in America that has the highest percentage of immigrants, or if, if not the highest, it's, it's up there. Yeah, and furthermore, at the time, and again, remember, this is pre-internet, um, at the time, it kind of felt like New York wasn't really a part of the United States. It was a kind of offshore, um, you know, sort of free city. Um, because, you know, I mean, I remember, I mean, I remember one of, you know, the sinking feeling, which happened to me a lot in the 80s, uh, began, and this was in the 70s, actually, when they opened the first McDonald's in Lower East Side on First Avenue, and thinking, oh, yeah, we're done for now. Um, because those kinds of things, those national chains, and um, those national trends, you know, you see it on TV, and if you took a road trip outside of the city, you'd see it in action. But in New York, those things were not happening. New York was, um, you know, New York had its own culture. It had an immigrant culture. It had, um, it had certain traditions that had been going on for centuries. You know, New York was the place that you went to. Um, if you don't care about having a lawn, or or 365 days a year of sunshine, you know, if you don't care about all those amenities, but we're serious about, you know, emotional life and artistic life and, uh, and realize that, you know, you needed rainy days and cloudy days because they match your mood, you know, um, and we're, um, and, you know, also there was the fact that New York, of course, this has been over for some time, but back then, there was a feeling that New York was kind of eternal because it was essentially unchanged from the 1920s or 30s at that point, you know, physically. Um, with very little construction. Yeah, there were, you know, it was Lever House and stuff like that, but by and large, what you got were, you know, great sandstone edifices from the 1880s and and then you know rows upon rows upon rows of tenements from the 1890s 1900s um you know it felt like this was the oldest city in the United States in in more than one way and by old not a bar to creative thinking at all but rather mm-hmm. rooted and grounded in a way that felt comfortable to me as a european you know who will never feel comfortable in a place like Las Vegas that was made up yesterday, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, you start, you, you've been associated with the New York Review of Books for a long time, and, and you started working in the mailroom there. When you first started working there, was it kind of strictly a day job, or did you have aspirations of, you know, moving up in the building? Well, at first it was a day job. I worked in the mailroom for a year, and it was strictly a day job. I was, I wasn't writing very much in those days. I was really... Uh, I, I think coming into the New York Review coincided with probably the peak of my party-going years. Um, <laughs> but uh, within a year, Barbara Epstein had asked me to become her assistant, which was new and weird and all that. I was aware. That I just I was aware that you know the assistants tended to have gone to Harvard. I was a Columbia dropout, you know, um, and uh, I didn't feel like I 
matched, you know, I rated socially. Um, but nevertheless, I, I made the move. And then I saw, you know, I saw how um, the donuts got made. And I thought, this is not really so difficult. I could write one of these myself. So I wrote one on spec and it was published and I continued to write for them ever after. And that was, gosh, 40 years ago. What was that first piece about? It was about Albert Goldman's biography of Elvis Presley, uh, which I just reviewed. I just read a selection from in Rolling Stone that was, um, oh, I don't know. It was about jockey shorts and his mother or something. I don't know. But it just, I thought, this is outrageous. It's just like manipulating the evidence. And I wasn't the world's biggest Elvis fan ever, but there was something about what Goldman was doing that was repugnant. So, and I knew that they'd sent the book out uh, to a, at least a couple of reviewers to turn it down. So I swiped the book from the review cart and took it home for the weekend and wrote a piece very quickly. And, so your uh, first piece was a pan? Yeah. <laughs> Auspicious beginnings, yeah. Um, mm. One of the things you write about in a couple of the essays is sort of crime and detective fiction. Was that an interest that you'd had since, like, childhood, or is that something you picked up later? Uh, that started in high school. In fact, I was just thinking because I, I wrote a, I just wrote a, piece, a short piece on the Rock Press, and I was thinking about the fact that, yeah, I just I first read about Raymond Chandler and Dashiell Hammett and James M. Cain in I think Infusion, which was this Boston um, rock publication from the late sixties, early seventies. So, and then I found them at the public library, um, and. Um, and that was a you know major revelation to me at the time the, uh, the 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 poetry of crime fiction were those guys sort of like did they kind of rate in terms of the literary establishment at that time i'm i'm not sure exactly i mean i'm sure you know people respect those guys tremendously now but did, was that true at the time or was it still considered sort of i don't know lower class yeah it was it was not you know i mean um we uh during that period um it was not uh, you, you had nobody on campus examining that and i the reason i'm tripping over my tongue a little bit is because i realized that frank mcshane um who was um hammett's biographer um or at least he collected his letters i think or um was uh, just then starting the graduate school in writing at Columbia, but I didn't know I didn't hadn't put the pieces together. I didn't know Frank McShane, didn't know the book until it came out, etc. But yeah, it did feel like something that was going against the grain of the academy at the time. And in fact, you know, popular culture in general was not something that was examined in the academy then, as opposed to what it is now, where um, it's almost. It's almost required of faculty members to touch on popular culture, which gives everything a different spin. Mm -hmm. Was that kind of part of, did that sort of become your beat at the review? Was that, you know, writing about popular culture? You, write, you also write about uh, kind of vernacular photography in the book. Was that, was that kind of what, one of the things you brought to that publication? Uh, well, I didn't start writing about, I I wrote a few times for the, about photography for the review, but that was not my main venue for that kind of writing. Um, but I mean, I did, you know, I mean, I tend to write mostly about more popular subjects for the New York Review. 
but not exclusively that. You know, I've said, you know, I have um, I have a few other knots on my rope. You know, it's French culture, which uh, French literature. Go back to every now and then. I had a I had a very very broad mandate at that point. So I, whatever interested me, I'd write about it. And uh, a lot of it was popular culture because it was fun to write about and was not getting covered. And I knew a lot about it. You know. You you teach the history of photography, isn't that right? Mm-hmm. I do. When when did that when did that interest kind of really start um, start up and and kind of uh when did you start writing about those topics um well i'd been interested in photography since i was in high school vernacular photography is something i discovered through flea markets um especially there was a giant 24 hour seven day a week flea market on astor place in the early 80s and that's that was kind of the site of my awakening to vernacular photography and then my second book, Evidence, which was a spinoff of my first book, Low Life, was a collection of photographs uh, taken away by, at murder sites, mostly by the NYPD between 1914 and 1918. And when that book came out, I suddenly got a lot of requests to write about photography. And uh, it opened up a whole second front for me. And um, I, you know, I got very interested in photography, especially um anonymous vernacular works, uh, especially from the late 19th, early 20th centuries. And um, that's that just came about. I mean, um, I kind of backed into that job, not really aware that that was going to be um, a major focus for years to come, but it's worked out very well. Do you, so uh, I think one of the things that's interesting to me about writing about photography is that for a long time now, people have said, you know, everyone's a photographer now, but now it really seems like everyone's a photographer. I mean, you know, uh, thinking about Facebook, Instagram, do you feel like that has radically changed photography or do you, do you feel like that's kind of more just a kind of next step in a natural progression of a, an art form that's always had a, a vernacular element? Well, it's a, yeah, it's a next step. It's a big step, of course. It feels ex- exponential in terms of just the volume. But, you know, people were saying everybody's a photographer now. They said that in 1890 with the, the Kodak box, you know, and then with um, popularly available roll film in the early 20th century and then, you know, with the, the Leica and then with the Brownie, um and the Instagram, uh, the um, Instamatic in the 60s, you know, every time people would say, okay, well, you know, this further proves that photography is not a real art because everybody's doing it now. Um, photography did not kind of officially become an art in many ways until the 1980s, which is when major museums started photo departments. Most of them didn't have one before then. Um, and so this is just another, you know, like I say, it's exponential in terms of numbers, but I see it as just another hop, you know, and um, in 20, 30, 40 years, assuming we have that much longer as a society, um, you know, by then, um, whatever we're doing now will seem quaintly like another 
um, another feature of the dec- you know the landscape of the 2010s and 2020s. Um, and um, you know, I don't think it will have destroyed photography. It will have expanded it a bit, and um, and certain kinds of social media photography will be, um, you know, there'll be discoveries made after the fact, and we'll begin to see how a certain kind of style grew up without our noticing it. You know, this this sort of thing. Um, you know, but and but meanwhile, art photography goes on too. Um, you know, things that look like. Uh, you know, I remember when um, when digital photography really became a thing, um, and our photography department at Bard, which up until that point hosted mainly um, people who were doing mainly street photography, um, and then suddenly. Nobody was doing street photography. Everybody was doing some kind of digital manipulation. But now we're coming back to street photography again. And in fact, there was a piece about it in the New York Times just a couple of days ago, the, the comeback of street photography. In fact, it's, it's never gone away. You know, I mean, um, I don't think photography as an art is being harmed by um, the online version Rather, its vocabulary is expanded, and it's the expectations of that we have for the art form are being changed. But um, but it's all part of the same narrative. Well, Luke Sand, I've already taken up so much of your time, but thanks so much for being on New Books and Performing Arts to talk about maybe the people would be the times. I I really enjoyed reading it and getting to talk to you. My pleasure. Great great questions. Thank you. <laughs>